Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you want to stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you want to escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. I'm currently switching off between The Woman's Hour and Crazy Rich Asians. Sometimes you need a little of both. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Hi, this is Jenny Kaplan. Welcome to our latest bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. The midterms are just around the corner. In fact, they're tomorrow. So on top of our regularly scheduled narrative-style episodes, we're bringing you lightly edited interviews with experts, thought leaders, and people standing up to help women get elected. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Brenda Carter. She's the director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign. To start off with something really easy, if you could just tell me your name, your title, and a little bit about what you do, we like to have everyone start that way. My name is Brenda Carter, and I direct the Reflective Democracy Campaign, which is a project that works to change the demographics of political power in America. And what's your story? Where did you grow up? How did you get on the path to where you are today? I actually grew up in Minnesota um, in a small town called Red Wing, outside of the Twin Cities, that sometimes people have heard of because they make Red Wing shoes there which are um, mostly kind of work boots. And I then, uh, after high school, I went to college at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and several years later then went to graduate school um, at Yale University where I got my Ph.D. in American Studies. I've worked in some form of politics and organizing social justice work really my whole life. I've always been very interested in politics, I think, um, and I guess I define politics kind of broadly, not just electoral politics, but questions of power and who has it and who doesn't and why. I think part of that stems from the situation in which I grew up. Um, I was adopted as a child from Korea, so I grew up in a small, overwhelmingly white community, and I always felt a little bit like I didn't really fit. Um, And I think it made me maybe more aware than the average person of kind of political dynamics, you know, even as a child, um, you know, who gets to decide things and whose perspective is taken into account. What does it feel like to not have the kind of voice or power or say over your uh, circumstances that you might want to have. So I, my, my very first political campaign that I ever worked on was Paul Wellstone's run for the U.S. Senate in 1990. He was an outsider, 
progressive candidate who challenged the sitting, one of the two sitting U.S. senators in Minnesota, and it was a t- really a David versus Goliath kind of race, and he won. I worked on that as a volunteer, and I also became then a delegate to the Minnesota uh, Democratic Farmer Labor Party State Convention and got very involved in the caucus system and was a, a Wellstone delegate. And if you were going to choose to probably like one of the most inspiring political races to be involved in as your first one, that would have to be pretty high on the list. So that's kind of, you know, that was my first kind of formal political, electoral political experience. I then went on to um, work at, after college at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which, as you know, enforces the federal laws prohibiting discrimination in employment. And coming out of that experience, decided I really wanted to know more about how American society had come to be organized the way it was, and why was it so segregated? Why was there so much inequality um, by class and race and and gender? Um, Sort of how had we gotten here? And that's what led me then to go get my PhD in American Studies. Uh, I sort of wanted to know more about the history of all of this. And then unexpectedly while I was doing that, I got very involved in a union organizing effort among the teaching and research assistants at Yale, um, of whom I was one. We were fighting for better working conditions and academic freedom and essentially a better uh, model of the university as universities were becoming increasingly corporatized and relying heavily on casual labor. So that kind of introduced me to organizing and I discovered that I really liked it. And After finishing my PhD, during which time we went on strike a couple of times at Yale, which was a really transformative experience, I then went to work in the labor movement and worked for the Union of Hospitality Workers in the U.S. and Canada called Unite Here. Um, And so in that context, did a lot of uh, both organizing work, but also more formal kind of electoral work. Um, on behalf of the union. So it kind of brought those two strands together. Then about four years ago, um, I came on board to lead this new initiative called the Reflective Democracy Campaign. Tell me about the Reflective Democracy Campaign. I'm so interested. Um, How did it come to be and and what kind of work are you doing to accomplish its mission? The Reflective Democracy Campaign is based on the belief, as the name suggests, that the people who hold political power in America should reflect the rest of the population, that the people who make important decisions in state legislatures, city councils, Congress, all levels of office should share the life experiences and the perspectives of of the rest of the American people. We focus on race and gender in particular and the ways that the political system disproportionately excludes women and people of color from political office. But our vision is is broader than that. And and we really believe that in order for us to realize the promise of American democracy, we have to have, um, you know, really truly the sort of, you know, government for the people, of the people, by the people that, you know, we've always sort of told ourselves that we have or that we aspire to. The Reflective Democracy Campaign was founded by the Women Donors Network, which is a collaborative of about 200 progressive women around the country who um, are individual philanthropists and who come together in the network to fund projects and work for greater collective impact. 
um, and to pursue and to support um, progressive values and goals. And the Reflective Democracy campaign really grew out of their their commitment to the values of of real representation in the halls of power. How has the lack of diversity in our government affected policy? I know that's a big question, but <laughs> but but what does it mean? I mean, like that's one of the, we're trying to ask these big questions to sort of explain why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I think there's almost no limit to the answer to that question. Really, you know, we we've never seen a, a, a truly reflective democracy in America. We've never seen just to take women and people of color. We've never seen women and people of color represented in anywhere close to their presence in the population in political office. So in a way, it, there's almost we almost don't know what it would be like, right? It's, um, we've been so far from it throughout our history. Every policy decision, every question about legis- legislation and policy um, that an individual elected office holder makes is inevitably shaped by his or her life experience. It's not that we are incapable of seeing beyond our lived experience and our own personal history. We hope that elected office holders can do that. But when you have really the majority of the population excluded, largely excluded from decisions about things large and small about the way that our society works and the rules of the game, we can't possibly be making the best decision. So on the flip side, uh, what would change if our government did look more like the people it represents? Well, I think there would be both changes in the, the laws that get passed and the policy decisions that get made, right? Women, we know, are a majority of the population. And though they are not monolithic by any means in their political views, we also know that they strongly support certain policy positions right, around economic equality and um, the environment and gun control and the list could go on and on. So having true representation of women uh, in proportion to their population, I think would almost inevitably shift those policy debates and decisions. But I would also say that I think having elected leaders who really reflect the people would would shift things in another less sort of policy specific way that is as important, which is that I think it would actually give people much greater faith in the political system. We know that from history that our system breaks down when communities and groups and constituencies don't see themselves represented in it. Um, People can't be expected to have faith in a system that doesn't reflect their experience. And I think increasingly we're seeing that happen. And I think having people who do represent the full range of the American people is really the only solution to that. We cannot continue to have a single small slice of the population empowered to make decisions for everyone. Looking around the country at all of the different voter suppression laws that are being put in place or or policies that are making it harder for people to vote, I could very easily see how people are discouraged and don't want to go vote. And it seems like having people elected who people from different backgrounds can actually identify with might help to um, encourage people to, to get out there anyway, even though there are those hurdles. Right. And, you know, we 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 launched the Reflective Democracy campaign in 2014, and it ended up being 
right after the uprising in Ferguson, Missouri, after the death of Michael Brown at the hands of the police, which you'll, I'm sure, remember was one of many high-profile such deaths that happened in that time period. And that tragedy precipitated a broader crisis in Ferguson in particular that revealed this incredible exclusion from, of communities of color from positions of power, whether it was in the police force or the city council or, you know, sort of the range of governing bodies and policy bodies that exist. And it became clear that this was a system that did not represent the population, did not reflect the life experiences of the people in the community. And that really, I think, shine a light on what we're talking about here. It was an extreme case, obviously, and it was a tragic one, but it was clear that there was a profound disconnect between the community and the people who allegedly represented them. That crisis and that tragedy kind of helps us to understand what's at stake here. And, you know, I think we could look at, in a kind of bookend uh, to that four years later, we could look at the Kavanaugh hearings that happened just a couple of weeks ago and the really, I think, crisis of democracy and legitimacy that broke out around his nomination hearings to the Supreme Court and that, that whole process and the way it unfolded, it became clear that women, many, many women in particular, certainly not all, but I think a very wide swath of women in America felt like they looked at the U.S. Senate and felt like this is a group of people dominated by people who do not represent me, who do not understand my experience and for whom my perspective on this does not matter. I want to talk about this moment in history. A record number of women are running for office this year and I'd love and a record number of women of color. And I'm interested in what you think brought us to this moment. What do you think brought a record number of women to run this election? I have kind of three thoughts about that. One is that while this year for sure does mark a really historic shift in the number of women on the ballot, it certainly didn't come out of absolutely nowhere, right? There has been efforts for a long time among organizations and others to build women's political power. And this has been an ongoing project for decades, really. I guess, you know, the second thing is that it's very clear that there's a Trump effect this year. Since 2016, we've seen increasing levels of activism and political engagement among women, in particularly, particular among white women, I think, who have um, not previously felt themselves called to engage politically in this way. And so I think there's a real sense that women have to, women are positioned to step up and win political power, but also defend certain democratic values that many feel are under threat. The third thing is, I would say that I think that part of what's happening here is not only that individual women are feeling moved to step in and step up and run for office, but that the systems themselves, you know, the, the structures within the political system are for a variety of reasons opening up slightly more to women. I think often we see politics in America as very much a story of individual inspiration and ambition. You know, right, like individual people um, become inspired to run and they throw their hat in the ring and then, you know, the voters vote. And in reality, it's so 
so much more complicated than that. There are behind-the-scenes organizations and actors that really shape the path for people and can block that path or can facilitate that path. Political parties, major donors, advocacy organizations who endorse and support candidates. That's the landscape that any candidate is encountering when he or she decides to run for office. And I think for a variety of reasons, that system is shifting a bit now. I don't want to overstate it. (laughs) These are very entrenched systems, and the status quo is very powerful. But I don't think we would see a shift in the number of women on the general election ballot that we're seeing this year if there weren't changes happening within the system itself. Why are there so few women in office to begin with? There are a lot of reasons, I think, why there are so few women in office to begin with. But I think most of them, in from my perspective, center around this question of institutional power and structures within the political system. I don't think there's ever been a shortage of women who care about their communities and who would aspire to represent them in political office. Um, I think uh, the the primary obstacle has been the way the system itself works. Our system of political representation in the United States was never set up to accommodate reflective uh, candidates and office holders. It, It was, in fact, built upon exclusion from its very beginning, when only um, white male uh, property holders could vote through the long history of disenfranchisement of women, communities of color. It's been a long and arduous process of different groups fighting for and winning access to political representation and participation. And I think there's a way in which we can, it, we can sort of tell ourselves that, you know, well, after the civil rights movement and the sort of legal equality of of women and people of color, all of that is behind us. And now it's a sort of fair and open playing field. And that's just not the case. The system still has a history of exclusion and the structural barriers in the system are really baked in. And while they've been chipped away, um, it's by no means uh, kind of open and level playing field. So again, you know, some of the things that we were just talking about, political parties, donors, advocacy organizations, there's a kind of white male default setting in the political system that manifests itself in various ways from start to finish. And for women and people of color to succeed, they have to knock down the ways that that default setting presents itself throughout the process. Since you're so immersed in this world, what's the most interesting or compelling or surprising research on women candidates or candidates generally or politicians that you've seen recently? I would say two things. One is a piece of research we did, and then one is is a piece of research that that comes from other people. The one that we did is we do a variety of kinds of research in, in our work, including the big data sets mapping the race and gender of candidates and office holders nationwide. But we also do public opinion research, and we've done a couple of different big comprehensive studies of the way that Americans view this question of reflective democracy and 
you know, do they want more women and people of color in office? Why do they think we don't have more? You know, sort of how do, would they like to change it? What is, kind of what is their view of all of this? And a, a couple of things came out of that that were very interesting to me. One is that regardless of party identification, Americans actually strongly support more women and people of color holding elected office. That is not a belief unique to Democratic voters, although it's stronger among Democratic voters, it, but it, it is a commonly um, held view and desire among American voters. The other piece of that that was inter- very interesting to me is that Americans significantly underestimate the extent to which elected office is dominated by white men. People understand that it is, you know, that it's sort of the old boys club and they know that politics is not reflective of the American population, but they underestimate just how unreflective it is. The other piece that I've seen recently that's very interesting finds that women of color are often the most successful political candidates. So when they're on the ballot, they win you know, this varies somewhat by where they're running and the composition of the district. But in a variety of studies, um, I've seen that women of color actually outperform other candidates on the ballot, which is, you know, exciting, but also kind of goes, flies directly in the face of, I think, what has so long been the conventional wisdom in politics, which is that outside the box candidates just aren't electable, right? Um, that People from the political parties, for instance, saying things like, well, you know, we'd love to support more women, but we just don't think they're electable. That's particularly a a kind of trope that's applied to women of color. And to see that they are, in fact, often the most successful candidates is so counter to that conventional wisdom. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, or if you have suggestions for how we can improve, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. We'll be back tomorrow with a special Election Day double feature. We're telling the stories of two inspiring candidates. Talk to you then. Here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy, Take On America. Are all Black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a Bloc. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.